Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. Resist is too passive. People have to organize. They have to act. They have to get involved. They have to do it at the local level, the national level. They have to stay in the dialogue. They should not get distracted in the raccoon theory by the shiny objects and the fights that don't matter. We've got to focus and build a progress and a movement going forward. Because if we don't get involved, we get the government we deserve. Today's guest, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, who won last year after really quite a mess in local politics out in the Emerald City. The last mayor, Ed Murray, got abruptly sacked by a scandal of molesting young boys years before he was in office. Then all of a sudden, there's an open mayor's race in a very democratic city that had become central to the anti-Trump movement. Durkin was a former U.S. attorney appointed by Barack Obama. She was actually the first openly gay presidential appointee ever anywhere in the country for any senior position. But she was practicing law, and she says not expecting to run for anything. There didn't seem to be any options. All of a sudden, there it was. Mayor. Not the most obvious transition for a former prosecutor, but one she was eager to get into. And she's gotten into it quickly, working on everything from drug crimes to the future economy to fighting the federal government on immigration raids. There's another thing that struck me about her. She was the first Obama alum to run and to win after he left office. Now there are dozens running. So many that Obama's staff, which is trying to keep up, can't track them all. At least that's what they told me. This is what the article up on the website that I wrote along with this interview gets into. So please get over to Politico.com and check that out. I talked with candidates for Congress, Attorney General, Assembly, all trying to figure out how and why the Obama connection is resonance and what it's doing for them in their races. Spoiler here, almost everyone who worked for the administration has been winning primaries. We'll see if they go on to win the general elections. We talked about all of it when I caught up with Durkin over the weekend in Boston at a meeting of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. We also talked about what being through all of this has meant for her, especially as a lesbian, former federal lawyer who watched the Supreme Court decision on that Colorado Baker case come down last week. Remember, subscribe, pick up your phone, hit that button, tell everyone you know. You don't want to miss an episode coming up. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is coming up next, talking about her approach to the Senate and to Trump and how her own religious convictions drive her throughout. You are not going to want to miss that episode, believe me. Then we've got so much more, including Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, a young Latino Republican, talking about all that experience, and Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. The list goes on. Make sure to rate us, leave a review. My opinion, rate us with five stars and leave a great review. You do that on iTunes, Stitcher, however you're listening. And follow me on Twitter at Isaac Dover. Email me your thoughts at Isaac at Politico.com. And now, my conversation with Jenny Durkin. Tell me about how you ended up in Alaska. You know, it is one <laughs> of those things that you, life uh, just happened in many ways. I, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. Since I was a young kid, my Why? sister and I were both going to be lawyers. We're going to be Durkin and Durkin's sisters-in-law and literally in grade school. And so I got through college. I'd applied to law school. I had gotten in. I was ready to go. And then I thought to myself, do I really want to practice law or am I just program myself? So I thought I wanted to do something different and wanted. at first looked at Peace Corps. Wasn't sure I wanted to do two years. And so a friend of a friend had done the program up in Alaska. It was a teaching in a very small Eskimo village uh, on the Yukon River, and it was fantastic. How did you – what was that choice to go to? You know, it, 
I've always been committed to principles of justice. And I think growing up in an Irish Catholic family that was ingrained in us. And it was, I wanted to do something different than I'd done. I wanted to serve and I wanted to go somewhere that was foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've an Eskimo lived, village is foreign an to Eskimo village everyone is, except for Eskimos. Right? Exactly right. And it's more, you know, I lived in Ireland in college and being in that Native American village in Alaska was more foreign than living in Dublin. <laughs> And how long were you there for? I was there for two years. Teaching. I taught high school English and, and coached the girls' basketball team. So I flew all over the Yukon Delta to tiny little villages. Uh, and it was a really amazing time to see cultural shifts from, you know, how the economy was changing in rural Alaska. So what year are we talking here? I was there in 1980 to 1982. Yeah. So and and then have I you had, been back there since? I had, I've been back only once. I stayed the summer after I taught because I was then going to go to law school, but mm-hmm. I was broke. We earned 35 <laughs> bucks a month. And I'd saved no money, so I I'm worked. I'm surprised that teaching English in an Eskimo village was not a great. profitable, yeah. right. <laughs> um, so I, I stayed in the village, and I worked as a teamster for the local uh, airline, uh, loading jets, mm-hmm. unloading jets. Made enough money, went to law school. And then after law school, I went back to the village one time because the school I taught at mm-hmm. was closing. Um, and I haven't been back since, although I've communicated with my students since then. Really? You're still in touch with them? Yep. Every once in a while, they ping me out of the blue and, and tell me what they're doing. <laughs> That's uh, I've actually never been to Alaska. I'd like to go to Alaska, but I don't think I would go for two years. Uh, it's yeah, a long it's time. a little long to go, yeah. but it was great. And you should go. It's um, it's It really is the end of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, there's parts of Alaska that are untouched. Uh, and I did things there that I think served me well my rest of my life. Like what? I'll give you an example. The second week I was there about, it was a Catholic school, Jesuit Volunteer Corps, and there was an old German nun, Sister Scholastica. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I've heard this is the moose story. Yeah, right? okay, yeah. you heard the story. <laughs> but they, you should, no, no. They, yeah, they, finish they, the story. So <laughs> I'm walking down the hall, and the school is this Quonset hut, yeah. corrugated metal Quonset hut, and she taps me on the shoulder and says, I need to follow her into the kitchen. And I said, sure. She opens the door, and there's a dead moose in quarters. And mm-hmm. she says to me, we must skin it. And that was important life skills for what? It was important life skills to know that you can do things you never thought you could do. <laughs> <laughs> so you did skin the moose. I did skin the moose. <laughs> Have you skinned any more? Uh, I've not skinned any more moose. Yeah. I, 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 maybe other animals and political uh, adventures, but no well, moose. That was a uh, detour in your life. You've had some other things that brought you away from electoral politics, but your father was in office when you were born, right? He was. And through when you were a teenager. Yeah. My mom actually doorbelled while she was pregnant with me, so I think I just inherited it. And he was our a fam- state rep in Washington. He was a, yeah. He yeah. was a state senator for the whole time I grew up, ran for governor twice. Mm-hmm. And our family, if you could walk, you could doorbell. And so I was in and around electoral politics. Um, but in many ways, that convinced me I didn't think I ever wanted to run. Why? Um, it's a, I think it's a very difficult life. And once I had a family, mm-hmm. I knew what it was like to be a child of a politician. Which is what? Ta- we talk about this sometimes with other uh, politicians who've grown up as children of politicians. Yeah, so. was, in some ways, it can define who they are or what yeah. they think their options are. Plus, it's there. I can remember, you know, if there were bad headlines against my father, we lived kind of out in the country and I'd go down look at the morning newspaper, and if I had bad headlines, I'd hide it in the woods. Um, and I just, I, you know, we try to protect our children as much as we can, so I wanted to, and it's a very time-intensive thing. It's hard You're, to have a family and, and be an elected official. Do your kids hide the headlines from you? or? <laughs> no, they put it right in my face. Mom, look what's on Reddit. Did you really do this? 
it must inform how you go about it. I mean, I, your, uh, your kids are already older by the time that you were uh, running for office. So uh, it's different from being born. Into it is it. much different <laughs> from it. And it's and look, today you can't avoid news. I yeah. mean, it's on everybody's phone. Um, some of it's true. Some of it's not. All the Politico stuff is true. All the, yeah. <laughs> the rest, fake news. Totally. What you end up doing is you did become a lawyer. Then you are a U.S. attorney. You work your way through a number of jobs and were a U.S. attorney appointed by uh, by President Obama. I miss him. Yeah. Well, a lot of Democrats miss That's him. That's right. right. The decision to go from being a U.S. attorney, which is a very non-political job, though it's an appointed job, into running for mayor on a very short fuse because of what happened last year in Seattle, uh, where you had a mayor who got caught up in a scandal because of some molestation when he was long before he was mayor. Uh, and then there were four mayors in 72 days, basically. Uh, you had six months to go from not having considered running for mayor last year to being elected mayor. So what is that process like? That trajectory was unexpected and, and in many ways uh, unfathomable. Mm-hmm. You know, I loved being the United States attorney and it really was a, a very uh, policy driven job. But as you said, non-political, non-partisan. And that gave you the latitude to do things in a way that I think really worked for the public good. I came out of that, was practicing law, loved the job yeah. I was doing. And it should be said, you were not part, one of the U.S. attorneys who was uh, dismissed uh, b- by President Trump. You had already left before yeah, that. I was. Yeah. I had already left. My friends like Preet Bharara yeah. were still there and got fired. Uh, but I, sta- I had already exited. I was practicing law. I had an international practice on cyber security that I loved doing. Mm-hmm. And really, it pretty much made the decision that I would not run for office. Really? Because people were telling me already, long before the mayor's thing, uh, that you might one day run. So that was just their speculation? It was their speculation. Not, not for mayor necessarily, but they were like, she's up to something. You know, <laughs> there's so many offices, but we've got two Democratic senators yeah. who, are, who are there as long as they want. Um, we've got Democratic governor who will mm-hmm. be there for a while. And so if you look at the, the Washington state horizon, there's not that many jobs mm-hmm. where you can really have an impact. Mm-hmm. So I, I had resigned myself to the fact that I, I wouldn't run. I was, I was practicing law. I was still supporting candidates. My world really started spinning differently when Donald Trump was elected. Mm-hmm. I saw the world more and more through the eyes of my children, one who's 21, one who's 17. And my older son, it was his first election. And seeing how much changed overnight, and because I was one of the first Obama appointees in the Department of Justice, I was one of the first on the beach. And so I was working with people like Preet Bharara and Sally Yates and Loretta Lynch and Bob Mueller and Tom Perez, and really thinking, what is what are we going to be doing as a country, knowing how everything we did positive was going to be dismantled so quickly. Mm-hmm. I really was encouraging people, you know, not just the resistance, but how do we make sure that we take the next step and really act and organize and reclaim government and inspire the next generation of youth? So when this opportunity came open, my first thought was, if I don't step up, who will step up and what can I do um, to further good? I really believe that not just because of Donald Trump, but Washington, D.C. is dysfunctional. It is broken. I think everybody can agree yeah. on that. <laughs> Everyone yeah. can agree on that. It is so broken that the positive things we need to move forward and the real challenges we have as a country, they are not going to happen unless it happens at the local level. 
And I think mayors are the place where you're going to have not just the laboratories that see what works, but the way to move progressive things forward. But is that uh, maybe the the good part of the Trump presidency for you? Uh, you're not a Trump fan, but this moving away from Washington uh, and and having mayors and governors take more responsibility, take more get involved more in the work that's happening? I, I do think it's a positive thing because I believe at the end of the day, democracy works best when decisions are made close to the people. And one of the reasons that Washington is so broken is there's become such a chasm between what they do and what people need. Yeah. And you see that palpably on your streets every day as a mayor. And so the challenge is not to be overcome by the immediate emergencies yeah. and to be able to look to the horizon. But the, the transition from being a U.S. attorney doing – you're not the only U.S. attorney who went on to run for mayor. Uh, somewhat prominently, Rudy Giuliani did that, um, but I'm sure he's Maybe not your model. Maybe spoof me on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Maybe. He might have to do some more spoofable stuff. That's uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is – That's another positive of the Trump presidency. Saturday Night Live is back again. <laughs> Are you a, you're a Saturday Night Live fan? I, I watch A the lot clips. of people feel like they, they've gone too far into just being – angry at Trump all the time. They even parodied that themselves. In the I think parody has been one of the good things we have right now in this administration to be able to show it in exaggeration. And the unfortunate thing is we don't have to exaggerate too much. Well, actually, can you go back and talk a little bit about what you were saying that before you made the decision to run for mayor, how much government can change and getting, t getting people aware of that? And what is it that you were specifically advising people to be on guard for and to to do about it. You know, there's there's a range of things, but you can take some public policy things like, you know, my background when I was in the Department of Justice is I was in charge of the cyber policy mm -hmm. for DOJ. And looking at that is everything from net neutrality to privacy mm -hmm. is going to impact how we function as a society and what individual liberty looks like. Mm -hmm. We've already seen how it can impact an election. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen how data can be stolen. It can impact our national economy. But if you're really looking to the future, who we are as humans and how we function is going to be determined in large part about whether we master technology or right. whether it masters us. And that's something that you felt like the government was going to change on overnight? No, I well, I do, because I think that by abrogating the duty to regulate where you should regulate yeah. and then regulate where you don't know what you're doing, those two things, I think, are a dangerous combination. You are, I think this is right, and I, I, I've checked this, and I'm going to make sure that I'm right about it. The first Obama administration alum who was elected after he left being president. Huh. And you talk about the that Donald Trump changed things for you. It changed things for, it seems like, a lot of people who worked in the administration for Obama or in the White House. A lot of Obama alums are running now, where it always struck me that their Obama alums left government and politics, that they were going far away from it. What is it the worry that the Obama administration is just going to be completely wiped out by what's happening with the Trump presidency? No, I think it's the reverse. I think it's because we saw the enormous amount of positive you could do in your communities throughout the Obama administration. I'll take just the Department of Justice, that you could really turn the dial on the criminal justice reforms at the same time you had great public policy and great public safety. But if you don't have the right people in there, you lose that. So mm -hmm. it's not just that you, you fear what's going to be rolled back. 
you know the positive that could be done that isn't being done. Um, and if you look at the challenges we face as a country and as a planet, you know, the coming automation, what is the policies we need to have around that so we're protecting um, our society, workers, and the economy moving forward? If we look at any range of issues, there's not a very good prospective analysis of where should we be as a country. And so I think that's what people are seeing is not only that are they rolling the clock back, which they are, they're in there dismantling brick by brick. You know, he tweets in the morning, he drives the news cycle. In the meantime, there's enormous harm being done to the country. But aside from that piece of it, everything else you're talking about would have been true if Hillary Clinton had won about the government needing to catch up to innovation and and the economy is changing. Do you, you feel like the burden of the Obama people needing to come back and, and get involved here in a way that they hadn't been over the last couple of years? You, your situation was different because you didn't have the opening into a, a natural campaign to run. But other people who hadn't been running for things, barely any Obama people ran, and now a lot. Now yeah. I think it's like 40-something who are running this year. I think that may be true, and I think it maybe it was the end of administration, and I think many people assumed that there would be a Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like a baton relay. You run it to the ends, you run as hard as you can, you hand it to the next group to push it. The baton got dropped. And so people are looking at what can we do to and make so sure— Obama was the baton. That's yeah. his metaphor. He liked exactly. <laughs> he was handing it off, and it, 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 it went to the wrong great leader. What's the, what's the advice that you would give to the people who are now, and they've been doing well in primaries, we'll see if they win a general election, but the other people who maybe were working in government, were involved in the administration one way or the other, but are about to, uh, if they win, get smacked with what it's actually like to be the elected official themselves? You know, it is very, very difficult, I think, to be in any elected office these days because the veneer of goodwill in our country has diminished. And we are changing so quickly as a nation. I think that history will write about this as more displacing than the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Our economy has changed so quickly. So many people have been left behind. And when you're the elected official, you take the brunt of that. And so I think run because you can make a difference. And when you get there, remember you were there to make a difference. And really try to make the difference in ordinary people's lives. Because if you don't, you fail. But it's different being the person who's the elected official herself. It is much different being the person who's elected official. Why? How? I think I think mayors in particular, people really look to their local officials. And they blame you everything from the potholes in the road to the people experiencing homelessness on their street to there's too high of property taxes. You know, they see you, they know you, they stop you, they talk to you. But I also think one of the very unfortunate side effects of the current administration is government is being devalued even by the people who are in it. They are always bad-mouthing government. You know, if you have the president saying the Department of Justice is bad, FBI is bad, you can't trust them, that reverberates down in a way that people don't understand. And so the message consistently coming from this administration and others is you cannot trust government. And people, if they don't see their lives changing, they agree. You cannot trust government. So if you're the elected official, you start with that presumption against you. When you, you must have friends still who are in the Justice Department. What does it do in the Justice Department to the people who are there? I think it's very demoralizing. In the main, people work at the Department of Justice because they want to have a positive impact. Eric Holder restored the ability to have a nonpartisan Department of Justice, and your job was not based on whether someone's Democrat, Republican, independent. You really were thinking about public safety, fighting crime, and minimizing harm. 
if you're there and every day your department is being bashed is not good and that's what is in the public realm, it's hard to do your job. And the uncertainty of even knowing if your leadership is going to be in place or if it's the right leadership that respects the troops. I mean, what we keep hearing is, well, the people that'll keep showing up and doing their jobs are not affected by this, but they are, right? How could you not be? Affected. I mean, when we came in after the George W. Bush administration, career people were congratulating us just because they felt that they could lift their heads and do their jobs. And, you know, we look, I, I would welcome the Bush administration back in those terms. So I, I think it absolutely has an impact on the people who do that job day in and out, not just at the Department of Justice, but imagine that the EPA or Department of Interior, where day in, day out, your work is being denigrated and told it doesn't matter. Pretty soon, not only do you not feel you can do the job, you're unable to do the job because you don't have the support. Let's talk about drugs. You have been mayor for just a couple months, but already done some major moves on on that. You, uh, you're not prosecuting uh, mar- marijuana possession, right? Um, you've got injection sites. Uh, what? You're a former prosecutor. What are you doing? Yeah, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, it's it's really, it's the full arc um, because I was the U.S. attorney when marijuana was legalized, worked with Jim Cole and, and the U.S. attorney from Denver to come up with the restrictions for legalized marijuana, now called the Cole Memorandum mm-hmm. that's been rescinded, to really see how do we protect, and uh, you know, kids and public safety and prevent organized crime and the like, at the same time giving some states some latitude. Mm-hmm. Um What I see now coming in is it has worked, not perfectly, but has worked. Having a legal market has taken a lot of steam out of the black market. Is there still illegal um, marijuana operations? Absolutely. Human nature. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we've also seen, if you look at criminal justice reform, we know that in the 90s, we had a criminal justice response to what was really a public health problem. And we incarcerated an entire generation of mostly men of color. Mm -hmm. And it's had devastating impacts, particularly in cities, as those people get released from Mm -hmm. prisons. They can't get housing. They can't get jobs. And if you look at in Seattle, marijuana is now legal in Washington state. There's a range of people who had been convicted for behavior, misdemeanor possession, so just small amounts possessing, um, that's now legal today. Because our norms have changed. Um, Our science is better. So why should we penalize those people? So when we came in, we looked at it carefully and thought one of the ways we could do is to act broadly and to vacate the convictions of those people convicted under city law Mm -hmm. for minor possessions. Um, Over 500 people, we have moved to vacate their convictions. It will help them and their families. Doesn't that encourage more people to get involved in in drugs? No, that's, that's the counter argument here. No, right? I don't think it does at all because what it actually the reverse happens. It allows us to expend our resources and our energies on those kinds of uh, drug interventions that are most important. Our federal partners need to be focused not on marijuana, but on the opiate crisis, mm-hmm. on keeping heroin out of our country and regulating fentanyl, on actually regulating the pharmaceutical industry so you didn't get 50 pills for getting your wisdom teeth out. Um, and so if we can focus our resources on what matters the most and take some of the money we were using for prosecution and have it on a public health strategy for treatment and diversion and education, we'll be a better society. Do you think it's working so far? I think it's hard to tell. It's right? hard to tell. Yeah. It's early on. I think this is. But the, you want to do more of this. We do. I think as a country, we have to do more of this. 
you know, it's not that you don't have any area for uh, enforcement and criminal law enforcement. You have to have that as part of your strategy. It has to be enforcement for certain laws. But for a certain part segments of the society, you have to look in and say, are we going to benefit from prosecuting and putting people in jail? Or are we going to benefit more by either education, diversion, and treatment? I was involved in setting up one of the first drug courts in federal um, in the federal court system. And it worked. There was a lot of skepticism at the beginning, but we took not a lot of people, but the people that we were able to help, we turned their lives around, their families around, they became more productive. And instead of incarcerating them at a really high rate in expense to the public. Talk a little bit about the role of women in politics these days. It seems like uh, women are voting in, in bigger numbers than ever before. And yet there aren't a lot of female uh, elected officials quite yet. We'll see what happens over the course of this year. Of the mayors, big city mayors, there are not a lot of women who uh, are. I think it's five of 20. Um, And you were one of those. Why is that? You know, it's really surprising. In Seattle, which is one of the most progressive cities in the country, I'm only the second woman to be elected, the first in 92 years. Yeah. Um, and I was, the one ninety two years ago seems like it was progressive. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Although she ran on a prohibition platform, so maybe it's kind of the reverse. And you saw, you know, I was in the wave of the, you know, the year of the woman after yeah. Nita Hill and helped a lot of women get elected. Mm-hmm. And there was this huge surge, and then it retracted. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure why that happened, but I think this one is going to be more sustained because I think we're at a place in our country where. Women want to get in and solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And we're good at being problem solvers to take some of the heat out of these very um, heated debates mm-hmm. and to find ways forward so that everyone can find a benefit. And so I think it will be more sustained. But I think that the, you know, it used to be the glass is ceiling. Is it a big change? The, that you think this is a change in society that's happening? I think it will, but I think it has to occur everywhere. Yeah. I think it can't be just government. It's got to be boardrooms. It's got to be the companies. You know, if you look at the new technology companies, mm-hmm. the number of women in positions of leadership has dropped compared to other businesses. You know, it used to be the glass ceiling. Now it's the silicon ceiling. Mm-hmm. And so we really have to I re-engage. I feel like you've used that line before. You think I have? <laughs> okay, I didn't just make it up. One, I was going through things of what you've worked on in your past. You were involved in some sexual harassment and discrimination stuff uh, and sort of for men who were accused of it, the former governor. Can you talk about that uh, experience and maybe how that looks different now uh, with the perspective of some years and uh, what we've all been going through over the course of last year? Yeah, I think that it has... Um so first of all, what happened with the former governor and 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 what your role was there? Yeah, and I'll even back yeah. up before that because um, very early on, I represented a woman who had accused uh, Senator Brock Adams, Democratic mm-hmm. senator, of drugging and and raping her. Um, that case caused a lot of consternation in the Democratic Party. People felt that you know he was betrayed. Um, eventually, the Seattle Times ran an article showing that there were numerous victims, and mm-hmm. he re- he quit running for office. Um, and this is the uh, what year was that? Eighty. It's about right. Yeah, yeah. eighty something. <laughs> um, and then after that, I was working in the administration of uh, former Governor Mike Lowry, who was accused of of sexual misconduct. We did an investigation. I left the administration. I think now it's it's. There is more sensitivity and more credibility given to victims than before, which is a good thing. 
The sad thing is that it's been happening all along and at scales that are almost unbelievable, you know, that Harvey Weinstein could be doing what he did Mm -hmm. to very powerful women and women who are placed in high and people knew about it and can continue. Um, So I think that we have to reexamine as a society, what do we expect in the workplace? But what do we expect in terms of respect and dignity? And women cannot advance unless they're given those basic protections. Well, what happened with the former governor? You, you, you left. Did you believe him when he said he didn't do it? I had known him for a very long period yeah. of time. Uh, and he, I left the administration. I was the attorney for the mm-hmm. administration. We hired an independent investigator. And, and the woman who had been harassed by the governor uh, brought a, a civil suit and it was resolved. She was, a, at, you know, looking back at it, you can see in today's workplace and this dialogue, um, she was very courageous to be able to come forward to go against a very powerful man and to demand change. Um, and she is a person who I think that if she were today, there would be a lot more support than there was at that time mm-hmm. um, for her. But it was a time where I think that we did not give enough um, both credence to people in the workplace and women coming forward. And it's not always women. Sometimes it can be men. Uh, to to make sure that when they come against people of power for any range of things, that there's ability and a place for them to do so and be safe. When you look back on your own involvement in that, do you think differently about it at all? Well, you know, at the time, when what I tried to do was work with her and her counsel, mm-hmm. make sure that she was well represented and supported, and at the same time, make sure that we put in an independent investigation to actually get to the facts that would be public. Um, I maintained contacts with her throughout the mm-hmm. years. I put her in touch with people that I knew who, mm-hmm. who had suffered similar things. Uh, I've seen her recently. She's a very courageous person, uh, married, uh, has kids, and continues, I think, to suffer some harms from that period of time. Just because it's one thing we don't do well is even today, when women come forward and accuse a powerful person of misconduct, they are then only known for that allegation. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the, for example, the woman who had uh, accused Brock Adams, every time she's mentioned because she, in the newspaper, it'll be her name, comma, who accused Brock Adams. Well, I think um, especially in the with the internet now, like where nothing, that'll be the first Google search on anybody who makes an accusation. Right. right? So, yeah. So there's this, it's, it's interesting though, because it's almost like, you know, the European law had the right to be forgotten mm-hmm. in Google. In some ways, women have the right not to be, t- to be tarred and labeled by being honest about being victimized. Mm-hmm. And so they shouldn't be identified by the person who abused them. They should be able to kind of leave that behind. But we haven't gotten there as a society. And I think that's the next thing to kind of be examining in the workplace, in the media. If someone bring those allegations, should they necessarily then always only be known by their victimization? Yeah, it's a hard thing. Yeah, yeah. It is a hard thing. Uh, we talked a lot about your professional life. Uh, your personal life, you are you're gay, uh, lesbian. Uh, this is a weird moment of people wondering where we are as a country in that uh, after the Supreme Court decision in Colorado. It has been all of uh, three years since the gay marriage decision at the Supreme Court. When you heard that decision, you're coming at it from who you are personally, your experience as a U.S. attorney in the Justice Department. What does that do to you? Yeah, it was deeply disappointing. It was disappointing not just for me personally and for my family because you feel like you gain rights and this seems so tenuous. 
Um, but it's also disappointing because, you know, being a lawyer and being, you know, setting up a civil rights section, knowing the law of public accommodations is the backbone of non-discrimination in our country. If you're at the lunch counter, everybody gets served. Mm -hmm. If someone walks in your business, it doesn't matter if they're black, they're white, um, if they're gay, they get served. And that suddenly we can be developing a, uh, a, a theory of law that there can be an exception to public accommodations based on faith. Mm -hmm. I think it's a false dichotomy. You can have First Amendment religious expression and belief and have non-discrimination, and the two do not have to be mutually exclusive. But I think if you look at Elena Kagan's footnote who says, you know, if, if you're a vendor, you can choose the product you sell, but not who you sell it to. And that should be the rule. The White House line on this was that it is freedom of speech and so to express themselves. You know, you can have all the speech you want, but if you decide to go into business, you got to sell your products and make them open to everybody. You don't get to discriminate because if we do that, you know, as U.S. attorney, I prosecuted a wide range of people. We did a whole initiative against militias. And if you talk to the Southern Poverty Law Center, we know that there are groups in America who on religious basis think that blacks are inferior or that mixed races are wrong. Um, that's a religiously held belief. Now, should they be able to open a bakery and not serve black people? Obviously not. You call it deeply disappointing, but I feel like that's that's the way you come at it as an, uh, an official. Uh, when you go home and you see your partner the night and that decision comes out, you think about it uh, on your own. I feel like deeply disappointing was probably not the right way to. It was hurtful and it made me angry and made me sad. It made me sad for my kids yeah. because you make these advancements. You think that finally your family is legitimate, not just in the eyes of your neighbors, but before the law and you can have equal rights. And then there's an intellectual argument why it might not be true. And, it's, and as a lawyer, you hear people talk about, oh, it's just a procedural basis. They didn't reach the merits. Tell that to the families that it affects. Um, and so I think that it is a way that we kind of sterilize what happens in courtrooms and forget how it affects people. For me, it was it was very, very hard to hear and read that decision. And even from from justices who I deeply respect, for them to be able to handle intellectually and think, what are the next two and three steps where they're trying to preserve some rights? Mm -hmm. I know that's what they're doing as a lawyer. Are you worried about where this will lead to? I'm deeply worried because it should never be a question. There should not be a religious exception to public accommodation laws because it does not stop with LGBTQ people. You know, it doesn't mean that if you're a, a you know, particularly you're getting to the gig economy. Yeah. So if you're driving your personal car and you go to pick someone up an Uber and you see that they're a Sikh, do you yeah. get to drive by and not pick them up because you don't believe in that faith? Um, you know, so there is a whole range of things that as Americans we stand for that I think this decision opens a door that's very dangerous. It must dangerous. feel like the, the advancement of gay rights is... It, is maybe tenuous at this point. It is. It's, it's a little bit like Which is different losing from the football. You know, <laughs> you have it, but you don't. Yeah. You can kick it, but you can't. I mean, can't. I remember that night when uh, when uh, the White House was lit up in rainbow colors and they, it was a, a, a celebration around the country uh, among uh, not only LGBT people, but people who supported them. And, uh, and it's, it feels just very different from where we are. It is very different. And it's it was so hard fought. You know, I was the first um, openly gay person appointed by a president to a senior role in the Department of Justice in the history of the country. Yeah. Think about that. Right. Which the, wasn't that, that was in 2009, right? 2009. Right. Um, and 
the whole time I served, we struggled with issues from don't ask, don't tell, to gay marriage, yeah. to non-discrimination. And I had a very um, progressive attorney general and Eric Holder and mm -hmm. a president who at the end fought for those rights. The entire time I served, my partner of decades could not be on my health insurance because it was prohibited by federal law. And so I think people who've suffered discrimination never really quite trust it's going to go away. Mm -hmm. And this decision says to them, you're right, it's not. So then uh, let's just leave it with this. Uh, we were talking about the obligation you feel to be involved here uh, now as mayor and uh, running for mayor. Uh, to, is this a moment that will, you think, change all the people who uh, took the progress uh, for granted that was there for Obama? I think there are a lot of people who supported what Obama was doing but assumed that it was there and one of the things that made that Obama responded to the Trump's election with was to say, "Yeah, people, you you have to keep fighting for it." But it seems like for people who agree with you on a lot of these issues, now there's this challenge. Okay, you want to get involved? Like you want something to to change? You have to get involved, right? Absolutely, have to get involved. Resist is too passive. People have to organize. They have to act. They have to get involved. They have to do it at the local level national level. They have to stay in the dialogue. They they should not get distracted in the raccoon theory by the shiny objects and the fights that don't matter. We've got to focus and build a progress and a movement going forward. Because if we don't get involved, we get the government we deserve. So by getting involved, I think you can actually make a difference. And if by having policies that talk to all Americans, we won't have a repeat of that election. You know, you look at the Rust Belt and the, the phrase, those jobs are gone, they're never coming back. It may have been true, but it was spoken with almost an arrogance that was an epitaph for those people's hopes and their families' mm -hmm. hopes. We need to make sure we don't make that mistake, that we are really looking at people's daily lives and thinking, how do we make them better? Because we're going to have more people caught in that economic reality. As, you know, Just on autonomous vehicles, it's estimated in five, seven, maximum 10 years, over 20 million Americans will lose their jobs. Yeah, and what do you do for the people? And who... what do you do now today to plan for that? Don't wait till they lose their jobs. Start now thinking about what are you going to do to protect those families? Because if you don't, all you're sowing is despair. We have to have hope. Do you think that Donald Trump is in good shape to be reelected? I think it's way too early for anyone to predict what's going to happen in the national election, presidential election. Um, I fear some of the things, you know, if you look over the, over history, that those leaders who end up uh, having trouble domestically start wars. Mm -hmm. That's my greatest fear. But I think that we cannot expect just because we perceive him as being so incompetent or so bad for the country that that's translating he's going to lose. We have to have a positive alternative and positive plans for real people. Because if we can't show people that their lives will be better, they won't vote for us. All right. Mayor Jenny Durkin, thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. Do you think she's right? The Democrats had an arrogance that was an epitaph for these people's hopes and their families' hopes? What do you make of her saying that the Supreme Court decision makes LGBTQ people feel like they are right to say discrimination never goes away? Email me at isaacapolitico.com and let me know. Let me know your guest suggestions, too. We're building out a big list for the summer and into the fall in this midterms year, but we need your help. Thanks to Zach Stanton for producing. Subscribe so you don't miss any of those upcoming episodes. 
Kirsten Gillibrand, Marty Walsh, Francis Suarez, many more. And remember, of course, to follow me on Twitter, at Isaac Dover. Getting close to 50,000 followers, but I need your help. Come on, need your help. And catch you next time on Off Message.